In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. I have, I have bad news, and I have more bad news. Which would you like to hear first? I'll give you the bad news first. I am dying of a fatal disease. Now here's the worst news. So are you. What's the, what's the fatal illness? Our fatal illness has a simple diagnosis. It's called life. In this world, life leads to death. In Jesus, praise God, death leads to life. Now, I'm not afraid of dying. At least I don't think I am. I came kind of close, I think it was 2017, and an infectious disease doctor later told me, he, we didn't think you were going to die, but you had everyone's attention. Well, that's not really where you want to be, but God gave me a remarkable peace that night. I, that, I don't have time to go into that story today, but I do believe that God gives us dying grace, and I base it on things like Psalm 23, David passed through the valley of the shadow of death, but God was with him. I also base it on a verse in Hebrews that says, by Jesus' death, he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. So I'm not afraid of dying, but I'm not very excited about the process of getting there. We all live in this frail veil of flesh, as I like to call it, and in this passage, the Bible says, indeed, in this house, we groan. Now, if you're healthy today and you feel good, if you're young, and it can kind of be hard to understand all that can befall you. Our bodies betray us. Uh, I, I won't go into a lot of detail, but I was doing, <laughs> I was doing premarital counseling uh, with a couple after church Wednesday night, and I wasn't feeling quite right, and all of a sudden I said, I think you guys better leave. And uh, yeah, I was on my hands and knees shortly after that, and Tara had to drive me home. It just happens, doesn't it? And if you're blessed to live a long enough life, by the, I'm fine now, by the way, just to give you a little relief. <laughs> if you're blessed to live a long enough life, and the day comes when that finish line is in sight, your physical problems and your emotional scars start to add up. And the temptation can be to give in to despair. But for the believer, death is not the end. It's just a transition to glory. Death for the believer is not the tragedy of life. It is the triumph of life. So let's open God's word as we look at this subject, advancing toward the end of life. How can we approach the end of life and not let the cumulative weight of the pain of life derail us? That's what we want to answer this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, Paul wrote this. For we know that if our earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we're in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we're 
at home in the body were absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds done in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or evil. Advancing toward the end of life, the first thing I want you to consider this morning is our gradual demise. Look at verse 1, our gradual demise. The phrase, the earthly tent, which is our house, that refers to our body. But notice he says, if it is torn down. That's a reference to the second coming. There will be people who never taste physical death because of the glorious return of Jesus. But for most of us, the body deteriorates, and then it dies. Your body is not you. Your soul is you. Right now, you inhabit a body, but your soul is you. Your soul is your individuality. It's your personality. Your soul is what differentiates you from the animals. It's the part of you that relates to God, and it was breathed into you by God. Your soul never dies. It's your body that dies. You know, the joke is that when you're getting older, you know you're getting older when everything hurts and what doesn't hurt doesn't work. <laughs> and the body breaks down. And when it breaks down, and by the way, no matter what age you are, as the body begins to have problems, it can wear down your soul. Because in this life, you cannot separate your body from your soul. I was talking with one of our members here just a few weeks ago, and, and he made a simple statement, and it just stuck with me. He said, life takes something out of you. And that's true. And as you age, difficult experiences exhaust your energy. They disillusion your heart, and they can drain your hope. And since you cannot separate the soul from the body in this life, the condition of your body can affect your soul. An aging, broken body can affect the way you think, your desire to do things, your ability to function as you once did. And without care for your soul, you can go into a dark place and wonder, has God abandoned me? Or does he care? It can trouble your faith. In my first church, which I pastored bivocationally, there was a, a godly man, a, an elderly man. I love this man. He was a longtime deacon in this little country church about 15 miles from our small town. He, by the way, he's the man who got us into the ministry. Here's how I got into the ministry. In July of 1996, Tara and I knew I was called to preach. Well, we didn't want to tell anybody because I'll just be just really transparent. We didn't want a lot of unwanted and bad advice. So we thought, let's just see what God does. And if nothing happens, we'll do something different at the start of the year. Well, about six weeks later, he came in my office. I didn't even know him really well. And he got to the doorway, and then he turned around, and he said, this may be the craziest thing you have ever heard, but would you consider becoming our pastor? And I said, well, Fred, you're now the third person in the world who knows I'm called to preach, and since God's called me and you're asking me to preach, I guess the answer is yes. That's how I got in the pastoral ministry, folks. I'm not very smart. I <laughs> I didn't have a plan. I had so much respect for that man, and he reached the point where he could barely walk with a cane, and I'm going to say it was after three years, 
He wanted to talk to me one morning after church, and I knew it was serious. He, and, and when he came, he, he's crying. He has tears flowing down his cheeks. This is an old rugged farmer. And he said, and I, I never forget his words, he said, I'm shirking my duties. And I said, what are you talking about, shirking your duties? And he said, I can't get around to do my deacon work. I can't get out and visit people. I can't witness. I can't even come to church every Sunday. He felt spiritually worthless because of a broken body. So look back a few verses at chapter 4, verse 16. Paul said, therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. As we said two weeks ago, this process of physical decay is happening at this moment, but for a Christian, spiritual growth and spiritual renewal is inevitable. That word renewed means to make new. The Holy Spirit inside of you will not fail to finish what He started inside of your soul. The Holy Spirit did not come to remodel your body. He came to make your soul new. So what is God doing as you age? The body hurts. You might have to depend on someone else. You see loved one die. Loved ones die, maybe friends die, spouses die. You experience tragedy and heartache, unfulfilled dreams, dashed hopes, and often you get to the point where you had another chance so you wouldn't make the mistakes you did the first time around. And maybe you say, well, I'm not aging, but you've got some scars in life and you've got some pain. What's God doing with all this? When all this happens, realize that God is building in you a desire to upgrade your address. Verse 2, for indeed in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God set eternity in the hearts of men. Life is like a three-legged stool in my estimation. The legs are money, health, and time. If one of those three break down, the other two tend to go pretty quickly. But if you have all three, money, health, and time, life can be a lot of fun. And if life is fun and there's very little hardship, then Ecclesiastes 3.11 doesn't seem to come into play. You don't have all that much desire to move on. But one of the worst disasters that can befall us is to be in love with this world, to feel really comfortable here. Unsettledness on earth cultivates a hunger for heaven. So dissatisfaction with this world is a grace. Otherwise, we'd be perpetually content in this foreign land. We would gradually and then gladly become part of Babylon and forget all about the new Jerusalem. Charles Spurgeon said a Christian should be content in the world, but not content with the world. So our bodies are these temporary, uh, temporary abodes. I'm living in a tar paper shack, to be honest with you, but <laughs> your gradual demise prepares you for a new body and a mansion prepared for you in heaven. So if you're a believer, <clears throat> don't be surprised at your heartache. You're not at home. This is not where you live. Heaven is your home. God wants you to keep your eye on that prize. And as you serve Him, 
and become more like him, your desire to be with him will steadily increase through life. So if you're not up in years, why would you spend your healthiest and most productive years chasing after things that won't last? I mean, what does the world tell us? <clears throat> Happiness is only one successful diet away. <laughs> or, or it's achieving your dreams. What was the... I, I stepped into to Blake's class for just a minute to put the members' meetings things in there, and you were talking about the Burger King logo. And they you, used to be have it your way, and now... I, and I hear this because when I watch NHL games, they have this commercial, I swear, every break. You rule. You rule. You rule. I'm so tired of that commercial, I can't stand it. <laughs> if I see it on the TV, if I, I'm going to watch the Chiefs game, and I'm going to punch it if that commercial comes on. <laughs> you don't rule. It says if you just had more of something in this world, your life would be complete, and somehow it never happens. Contentment is always fleeting. And those who live in that manner, they seek and they strive to search for that pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. If you ever found that pot, you'd say, that's great, and then you'd get frustrated, and you'd go to the other end of the rainbow to see what that pot has. We live in a country that is healthier, richer, and better informed than anyone who's ever lived before. We live longer, eat better, dress nicer, work less, play more than anyone in civilization. But are we happier? The only real contentment in life comes from knowing Jesus as your Lord and Savior and making Him the central focus of your life. You know, I found it's really healthy for me to spend a little time now and then thinking about how lost I used to be. It would be good for you, too. And then you realize you're not going to hell. You're going to heaven. And heaven is forever. And Jesus is there. And you'll see the face of Jesus without your sin nature in the way. And you're going to worship him forever with, with no inhibitions. When you start to think about that, you rejoice in what is coming. You know what often happens instead? We live in discontentment because of our bodies. A child says, I wish I was older. Why do I have to go to bed so early? A teenager says, I wish I was an adult. I wish I had a driver's license. I wish my parents wouldn't try to tell me what to do. They don't know anything. And a parent says, man, I wish my kids were older. I am so tired of changing diapers and changing car seats. And then the kids get to be teenagers, and you grapple with them because they think they know best. But if you're an employer, hire them now while they still know everything. No, no offense to teenagers, you should have seen me. when I, Every teenager here is smarter than I was when I was a teenager. And then the day comes when the house is empty and you say, if only the kids were visit, would visit, if only they would call, if only Joseph and David would return a text. And, um, <laughs> and they can't even hear me. And they wouldn't listen if they did. They would, I'm joking. And then when you get old enough, you complete the circle and you say, I wish I could do it over again and do it right this time. Here's the bottom line, folks. At every stage, be satisfied with Jesus. Be content with him. And when difficulty comes in your life, realize God's just using it to turn your heart toward home. So there's our gradual demise, but second, it's our graceful design. When this earthly house is finally destroyed, verse 1, 
says we'll have a building from God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. That refers to the resurrection body of the believer. Our body here is an earthly house, then it will be an eternal house. Your resurrection body will be immortal, incorruptible, and eternal. It's a building from God, a house not made with hands, but we don't have it yet. And as a result, we place a wrong value on the body. Your value is not derived from your body. It's not derived from your looks or the way you perceive you look. We derive so much of our value and self-worth from, worth from things that God doesn't value at all. And it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve thought they knew better than God. They sinned and all of a sudden they were naked in their body and very much ashamed. Nancy Lee Walgamuth wrote a book called Lies Women Believe. This is a great quote. She said, nowhere in scripture, excuse me, nowhere does scripture condemn physical beauty or suggest outward appearance doesn't matter. What is condemned is taking pride in God-given beauty or tending to physical matters while neglecting the matters of the heart. I was sitting in a church carrying one time during my first full-time ministry, and I was sitting by a woman that, she didn't come to church all that often. I didn't know her too well, and to be honest, what I did know about her wasn't encouraging spiritually. And I don't remember how the conversation got here, but I do remember what she said, and why she said this to me, I have no idea. She said, you know, 20 years ago, if I'd got up and walked across this room, the eyes of every man in this room would have followed me. And I thought, how am I supposed to respond to that? <laughs> and then, no kidding, I thought, I am going to respond to it. I said, it's not that way anymore, is it? <laughs> I did. <laughs> I wasn't trying to slam her. Because next I said, look, God cares about the heart or something to that effect. And she just muttered, and I will admit... It uh, didn't make my point very well. That wasn't, the, that wasn't the most pastoral thing I ever said. But she's an example of those who overvalue self because they perceive they lack physical flaws like that woman. And I was very awkwardly trying to make the point that that's not important. Most, though, devalue self because they're so focused on their physical flaws or their perceived physical flaws. You know, neither one of those is healthy. Yes, do what you can to take care of yourself. That's God-given common sense. But Philippians 3.20 says the day is coming when the Lord Jesus Christ will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. Some of you have had loved ones who were Christians and their body was polluted by cancer or mangled in a car wreck, or damaged by a birth defect, or maybe you've suffered with an infirmity most of your life. The resurrection changes all of that. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 47, New Living Translation, just for clarity. Adam, the first man, was made from the dust of the earth, while Christ, the second man, came from heaven. Earthly people are like the earthly man, and heavenly people are like the heavenly man. Just as we are now like the earthly man, we will someday be like the heavenly man. That cancer-ridden body, adios. Mangled due to arthritis, never again. 
canes, wheelchairs, dialysis machines, toss them down into the lake of fire. To you who suffer today, to you who had to bury a child, and to you who grieve, the believer will have a perfect resurrection body. I read a little story about a pastor talking to a girl in this church who had cerebral palsy. That girl was saved. She had this doctrine figured out. She said, Pastor, one day I'm going to have a new body and I'll swim because of Jesus. The promise of a resurrection body was making a difference in that little girl's life today. Is it making a difference in yours? Beware of moping around, checking off another day on the calendar, and being mired in self-pity. You have coming a building from God, a house not made with hands. Now we're talking about believers. What happens to unbelievers when they die? People who are not born again. My first four years in the ministry, I preached many funerals for unchurched families. And man, you can smell hopelessness in the air when you preach the funeral of an unsaved person. The atmosphere is unmistakable. And I lived in a small town and and I knew several of the people, at least a little bit, um, not all that well, but I, as I dug into their, when I got their obituary, I was amazed and dismayed to find out that most of those people at some point had a church background. I thought, man, I would have never guessed that. That's a cautionary tale to us because only he who endures to the end shall be saved. But what happens to a lost person when they die? They get a resurrection body. Like us, it's reunited with the soul. And then that indestructible body goes to hell forever. Jan, Daniel 12, 2. Many of them who sleep in the dust, sh, uh, excuse me, I said that wrong. Many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Jesus said in John 5, 28, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come forth those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Acts 24, 15 there says, There shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. That means it's never over, folks. Death is just a transition. And if you do not follow Jesus as your Lord and Savior, your body and soul will be in hell forever with the devil and his angels. But if you are saved, your resurrection body will be with Jesus, free from any laws of sin and death. That means there will be no more suffering, no more pain, no more dying, no more crying, no more agony. You know, I preach, that verse is out of Revelation. And I preached that verse one time again in my first full-time ministry. And there was a woman there, she was, she was hard. She was, I never got to really know her, she was just... Hard edge, if you know what I mean. But she stopped me at the door a little bit, almost like she was upset. And she said, is that true? Where did you get that from? And I said, well, it's Revelation, whatever it was, chapter 21. And I don't remember her exact words, but the look on her face was one of utter shock. And I wondered, what kind of hardship has that woman been through to be surprised to find out that's what heaven is going to be like? Now, the sad truth is most Americans believe that death just takes you to this better place. I mean, if you're a good person according to you, and you are a good person according to you, <laughs> you, know, you go to this 
better place. Now, they don't know anything about this better place, but they're sure of two things. It's better, and they're going there. People hire financial planners, project managers, attorneys, travel agents to make plans for the living of life and the ending of life, but they never make plans for after this life. And the Bible says the way is narrow and few will find it. Praise God, you don't have to guess about what the better place is and how to get there. But that raises some questions. What will our resurrection body look like? What age will I be? So here's the theologically correct answer. We don't know, but we know this. Psalm 17, 15, I will be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. Listen, friend, it's heaven. It's heaven. It's not this ethereal place where we float around on the clouds. Resurrection body on a real earth, a remade earth. And think of the most beautiful thing you've ever seen in your life right now. Just get a mental picture of it in your mind. Maybe it was on vacation or Tara's going, it's you, honey. But um, <laughs> She's nodding her head. How about that? Think of the most beautiful thing, seriously, that you've ever seen. That's a garbage dump compared to heaven. All the songs written about heaven, all the art created, the books written, the sermons preached, they fall so far short of the mark. The mind cannot fully conceive of the wonders of heaven and the glory of Jesus. That's why we get there, folks, to see Jesus which takes us to our glorious destiny. Now, when you die, what happens? Does your soul just go to sleep and you're like unconscious until Jesus returns? The answer is no. Do you spend time in purgatory? There's no such thing as purgatory. There are no biblical references to it. There are no biblical allusions to such a place. Shortly after I was saved, I, I saw a newspaper ad, and I wrote away to an organization that adheres to the doctrine of purgatory, and they sent me a little book, and I remember the name. It said, Purgatory, a Doctrine of Comfort and Hope, and I was excited to learn about this. And the book clearly explained that the, uh, the, the doctrine was not based on any scripture. It was based on the decision of a pope and some other, uh, some other councils. Man, I'm not interested in man's opinion about the afterlife. I'm not interested in your opinion or mine. I want facts from God's word. So notice there's a pledge of God about the resurrection. Verse 5. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. At the exact moment you believe the Holy Spirit came into your life. Ephesians 1.12 says, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. That's God's pledge. That word pledge in verse 5, it, it means, in today's uh, economy, it means earnest money. When you buy a house, you put earnest money down. It guarantees that you'll come back and fulfill the obligation you made to buy that house. God has not forgotten about you. There's a pledge of God about the resurrection. There's a promise of God about death. Look at verse 8. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. When you die, if you're saved, your soul goes immediately to be with the Lord Jesus. 
When the Lord Jesus died, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The Lord Jesus said to the thief on the cross, Today, not after thousands of years in the grave when your soul goes to sleep, today you will be with me in paradise. When Stephen was stoned to death, he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. So when it comes time to die, you have a promise of God about death. And then number three, there's a preparation of God for our death. Verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Only Christians appear at this judgment. Notice it's a judgment for deeds done in the body. And this is a judgment of rewards. If the word judgment throws you a curve, think of the word assessment instead. Now, how do we prepare for that day? I mean, it's coming. We ought to prepare. I found a good list in my files. I didn't write this, but here are six ways. Number one, will your act, do your actions edify self? In other words, Will they build you up in Christ or will they weaken your faith? Will they make you spiritually stronger or spiritually weaker? Number two, do your actions enslave your body? Will they help you become more like Jesus? Will they grieve or quench the Holy Spirit? In fact, is there anything that enslaves your body right now? Number three, do your actions exalt Jesus? Do they bring him glory? Do they honor his name? Number four, do your actions encourage other believers? There are some things you may have the biblical freedom to do, but if you do it, you're going to cause others to stumble. You're going to discourage them in their walk, and you're going to weaken their faith. Number five, do your actions evangelize the lost? In your body, do you point others to Jesus? Do you spread the word of God? And then number six, do your actions emulate Jesus? In other words, are they Christ-like? Now, as you advance toward the end of life and you prepare for this judgment, remember verse 7. We've talked about all these things you do in the body, but don't miss verse 7. We walk by faith. We prepare for the death of Jesus based not on what we do, not on what we do for Jesus. We prepare for death based on what Jesus did for us. His death his burial, and his resurrection. Some of you here this morning struggle physically. You can't do what you used to do. And I've talked to enough people to know that this next statement is true. You feel like you're not useful anymore to the kingdom of God. Friend, God knows your heart. In the meantime, don't give up. God isn't done with you yet or you wouldn't be alive. In the 1700s, there was an evangelist named Gilbert Tennant. And he said, my business is to live as long as I can and as well as I can and to serve my Savior as faithfully as I can until he thinks it's time to call me home. Amen and amen. Now this morning, if you've never been saved, if you can't say that when I get this resurrection body, I'm going to be in heaven with Jesus forever, then I want you to hear me for just a couple of moments. The Bible says you're a sinner. 
We're all born into this world of sin. Our nature is sin. We rebel against God in our words, thoughts, and deeds. And as a result, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. That's why we die. That's why we have physical death. And then there's the second death that the Bible speaks of. For those who do not know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, they're cast away from him forever. But the Bible says that God loved us so much that he gave us his son. Jesus came, he died on the cross for your sins. What does that mean? That means that God has to pour out his wrath on sin. So Jesus, as a substitute for you, died on the cross as God poured out his wrath for all sin, for all who would believe, past, present, and future. At the end of his life, Jesus said, it is finished. Not just his life, but God pouring out his wrath for man's sin. He was buried. <clears throat> and at this point, we could say, big deal, because I could say, I died on the cross and took God's wrath for sin. Anybody can say that. Three days later, he rose from the dead. If a man, Jesus of Nazareth, walked the face of the earth, and there's no doubt he walked the face of the earth. If he said, I'm going to die and rise again in three days, it behooves anyone with any sense of rationality to center their life completely on him. So he died for you. He died for you because he loves you. And right now, if you sense him calling you to himself, then believe on him. Have faith. Exercise your faith. Put it fully in him, not on the things that you do, not on the work you can accomplish, but by faith. Put your faith and trust in him, and you can have eternal life. Now, if you'd like to talk about that, and we would love to have that conversation with you, scan that QR code. Nathan, Kirk, or I will be in touch with you. You can stop one of us out in the foyer. You can talk to someone right next to you, but don't leave here today knowing that you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Let's pray.